There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. The Hunting Collective is presented by Element. I guess I grew up on an older road. Hey, everybody! Welcome to episode 138. I'm Ben O'Brien, and I'm here with Phil the Engineer. Phil! I hated that. Thank you. Thanks, man. I just like to yell at people to get them, make sure they're listening. To the worked on me. It worked on you. Yeah, the, if you saw the face that Phil made when I yelled into the microphone was one of disgust, one of ang- well, deep, deep anguish, yep. um, and despair. Well, we got a lot of things to do today, uh, but we have now. I'm going to let Phil pronounce Ivan's uh, last name, but we have a, a wonderful neurosurgeon on the podcast today because I've been thinking about since we went to Yellowstone National Park with Dr. Daniel Staler some weeks ago and talked about mountain lions, wolves, predation, all the things that surround those very important topics. What is the mind of a predator look like? What are their motivations? What are their biological, like what are the things they're like biologically tend to do or what are the things they're driven to do by conditioning? I've been thinking a lot about that. As I said, I may quit podcasting and and try to become a a wildlife biologist, but until then, doing things like this. So I looked around, I searched, I searched, I searched. I finally found a neurologist who had studied what actually goes on in the brain when it comes to predation. And so you'll hear all about the study from Ivan Araujo. Perfect. <laughs> We're going to go with that. Ivan D. Araujo. We'll go with that. And Ivan, if we pronounce your name wrong, uh, if Phil pronounced your name wrong, I apologize on his behalf. Thanks, Ben. Um, <laughs> always looking out for me. I, yeah, always. Always trying to protect you. Ivan, um, it was one of the more interesting conversations. Phil, you listened to a little bit of it. It was one of the more interesting conversations that I've had in some time. Just because of Ivan's delivery of the information, he is, I'm sure that no one listening to this has ever heard of him. He's The study he did on predation, specifically in mice, uh, and how neurons fire in the central amygdala, 
I said that right. I've been practicing that. Good job. Um, that study, I think, just sheds light on a lot of different things about how we think about predators, how predators interact with the world around them. And then he's, he's studied a lot of philosophy. So the way that he kind of presents this very technical information seemed at least to me and hopefully to you to be incredibly, incredibly helpful. So I look forward to you guys getting to that. We'll get to that as quickly as we possibly can. And again, apologies to Ivan for the name. Mess up. Well, Phil, what did you think last week? Like, did you get a lot of feedback from the David Hasselhoff exchange? Did you did you feel more motivated? Your number was at a five last we checked yeah. in with you. Well, people were inspired by David Hasselhoff inspiring me. Mm-hmm. That I, I got even more Instagram comments and messages, people offering their own words of encouragement. Yeah, no, thank you to everyone so out for there. That. Yeah, everyone out there on Instagram and in the emails that have been encouraging Phil uh, and keeping his his and it's it's we're like in the dog days of August. We were just talking about with producer Corinne before we came in here. We're all kind of just feeling a little bit of worn down. We're feeling dull. Um, I don't think my synapses, it's a good thing we're talking to a neurologist because I, I don't think my synapses are quite firing just right. I've been doing some things that I wouldn't normally do. I've been missing some beats that I would normally hit. And I think it's just been a long, drawn out, I think seven years has it been? Since uh, the pandemic begun? Yep. Yep. Almost eight. Almost eight. So we're all just kind of feeling worn down. But I have a someone here to, to keep you going, Phil, to push you Somebody else. Forward. Someone else. A, a good friend of the show. Hasselhoff wasn't enough. A good friend of the show. A good friend of the show. Yeah. Good okay. Friend of the show. Not, I'm not aware if this person has had a music career, but we'll dig that up. If there's any songs by this person, <laughs> we'll dig that up. But- Without further ado, play the music, Phil. And now, a reading. Hi, Phil. I hear you are learning how to hunt. That's Chuck Norris. Leonardo Leopold once said, we abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. That's right. When we see land as a community mm-hmm. to which we belong to, Thanks, Chuck. we may begin to use it with love and respect. Chuck Norris. Ben and I wish you the best. Stay safe and all the best. Your friend, Chuck Norris. Woo! Chuck Norris! Oh my goodness. Chuck Norris. <laughs> what do you think, Phil? Wow. Yeah. So I ended at a five and a half. Oh, uh, from last week. Yeah. Chuck Norris was a little more, like, he was a little more subdued than David Hasselhoff. That's true, but I think his words carried weight. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to go up a full number. Chuck Norris. Six and a half. Son of a bitch. Thank you, Chuck Norris. <laughs> I wish I had, you know, Chuck Norris uh, looks great, by the by. Uh, Not as many uh, gold records on the wall compared to Hasselhoff. No, he's like in a... I feel- he looks like he's in a nice I hear place. You are learning how to hunt. As Aldo Leopold once said, <laughs> we abuse land. That's right. We do abuse land. It's crazy that he just pulled that off, you know, quote off the top of his head. Yeah, no, I, you know, I called Chuck. I was like, hey, Chuck. I've Charles. Been, yeah. <laughs> Charles. I've been, I got this problem, you know, and then and the kind of guy that Chuck Norris is, he, he he's a problem solver and he's not going to let. We've seen it, yeah. Yeah, he's not going to let anything go. Go unsolved. And so thank you to Chuck. Uh, what's, you know, what's Chuck, what's his most famous movie? Uh, I have no idea, but I'm, I, his show, and I've got a history with this show, 
uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Oh. I'd say that that's the that's the the highlight of the Norris uh, career. There it is. There he is. Oh, he kicked the guy right in the face. <laughs> the unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth. He's a singer too. From right. Mm. Cause the eyes of the ranger are upon you. Wrong you do, he's gonna see. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> that's great. Behind you. Cause that's where the rangers gonna be. Boom. Thank you, Chuck Norris. <laughs> Thank you so much. In the uh, early 2000s, Conan O'Brien had a bit on his show called The Walker Texas Ranger Lover, where he would just pull it out and pull this lever and it would play a random clip from Walker Texas Ranger without any context whatsoever. And it was always completely absurd. And I think it's what got me, it like completely shaped my comedic sensibilities, that, that one segment. Yes, I... <laughs> Apparently, there's a Walker Texas Ranger reboot uh, last year, and so we'll 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 hang on. Chuck Chuck is busy, but I mean, in the yeah. intro song, if you guys go and watch the video, he roundhouse kicks the shit out of a guy, like harder than I've ever. And so that's what I feel like in your heart right now. You're doing to your hunting to the to the challenges that will be presented mm-hmm. to you here. Yeah, I mean that house he's, that house he's sitting in was was purchased. Uh, by his roundhouse kicks. Yeah. That's what he's known for. He's a, thank, well, thanks, Chuck, friend of the show. I'll text you later, buddy. Um, I know you're listening, so thanks. Thanks so much. It just just as an aside before we move on, I don't know any of these people. Uh, the the best part about uh, the and now a reading, which may or may not continue. I, I have no <laughs> idea if, if it's going to continue or not. And here's the reason why, because there's an app called Cameo. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, where I can pay celebrities to say pretty much anything I want them to say. No, this is disappointing. Yeah, you thought. Another peek behind the curtain. Another peek this behind the curtain. This whole show is just behind the scenes. <laughs> behind the scenes. Um, I've been paying, you know, I paid a hefty, hefty price tag to get Chuck to, to do that, but it's worth it to me. But then people were saying, inside media, they were saying, like, how do you get approval for these funds? This is completely frivolous. <laughs> and I was like, well... Yeah, <laughs> but it's awesome. It's content, baby. It's content. <laughs> so anyway, who knows? Who knows if you write in to meateater at themeateater.com and let them know that they, they, these that you monies, want this to continue. These monies are being spent. Yes, in the best way possible. And also have an idea. That's this has been the most entertaining part of the quarantine for me. Watching people go like and close friends of mine go. How the hell did you get? David Hasselhoff. In fact, one of my cousins wrote. <laughs> He's like, you know David Hasselhoff? I haven't heard from him in six years. Yeah. <laughs> You're friends with David Hasselhoff? Like, yeah, man. Yeah. Good good bros. Yeah. Goes back to day, Baywatch days. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, uh, Cameo. And I'm going to get on Cameo. And Phil doesn't think we can do it. Now, this isn't, a, again, isn't approved by the bosses at Meat Eater or anything. They don't want me talking about Very this. Very large asterisk in the yeah. corner of this next got, upcoming sentence. Here. <laughs> yes. But I got this idea where I'm going to be on, me and Phil together will be on Cameo. And then you can pay us. We're going to go, I think, 50 bucks a pop. Now, that's, I know that's a lot. We're in a pandemic. I think we can do it. If we can get 200 people listening to my voice right now, listening to this voice 
right now. 200 people to give $50. Me and Phil will do whatever you want. I think it's clear that I'll do anything. I dressed up like a fucking turkey one time and let Steve Rinella hunt me. So I'll do whatever you want. I'll dress up like every whatever you want. Doesn't really matter. 50 bucks, 200 people, that's 10 grand. I think I'm good at math. I think it's 10 grand. It could be a million dollars, but I think it's 10 grand. Take that 10 grand, we're going to give it to a charitable organization of, of our choosing. Oh, okay. That's nice. That's my idea. Now, that's not approved by anybody. Mm-mm. Nobody at Meteor HQ has approved that. I have to still like write an email and ask to do it. Yep. Got to CC a couple of the uh, whatever the suits you know, up top, board you know? of directors or whatever. <laughs> I but I think we can I think we can pull it off. And I think Phil Phil said to me before he record he said that I, we couldn't do it. He said we can't get two hundred people. He said something like even my favorite podcast I wouldn't give fifty bucks to, for a video. But I think he's wrong. Okay, I would love to I would love to meet that goal. Okay, anything else you want to walk back your negative attitude? Nope. No. Okay. I would love to meet that goal. Period. <laughs> period. Not a <laughs> Okay, we're not really doing that yet. Hopefully I'll get the approval, quote unquote, <laughs> and we'll do it next week or whatever. But I've already signed up for the cameo app okay. where I'm on there. And I and, and let me just reiterate one thing that's very important. Phil and I will do anything. Ben will do anything. Phil and I will do anything ben that you want us to do. O'Brien will do anything. Anything you want us to do. You want him um, to do. On the cameo. Yeah, 30 seconds. But anyway, thanks, Chuck Norris. We'll see who pops up next time on... I'm looking at. I'm looking hard at Carol Baskin, Phil. Hmm. By the by. I mean... <laughs> see if we can get her. Do you really want a reward of... It's a reward a mur- is mine. A, the reward... A murderer. <laughs> murder. Alleged. It's alleged. <laughs> she now owns a zoo, by the by. Hey. And a sanctuary. Anyhow, moving on, moving on. Um, we have to read a, a, a good email from our good friend Luke Reeves. Do you remember Luke Reeves? Uh, so, yes. Yeah. Luke Reeves, uh, him and his uh, betrothed, Lisa, came on the podcast. So, you know, he was the guy who I said, here's how you get engaged. And then he got engaged and then came on. We gave him, a, gave him a jacket. He also wrote in when we were doing Dr. Phil Medicine Woman, when he had the uh, rather short... I believe it was his uncle who was messing with him on their local property. And this is directly just to you, Phil, so listen up. Okay. Dearest Philium, it's been a long time since we corresponded over electronic mail about my clash with the halfling. And to say things are a little different in our country would be an understatement. So just to revisit Luke again, you can go back and listen to episode fill in the blank. I can't remember what it was. But there was a quarrel, a family member quarrel between Luke... And his uncle, who apparently is not, he's a slight of stature. Mm -hmm. He's kind of a short fellow. And there was a a, a continual clash, and he wrote in and asked Phil for the advice. And I think Phil's advice, do you remember what the advice was, Phil? Of course I do. (laughs) I was something like, do your best, uh, treat others like you want to be treated. And as as Luke Skywalker would say, I I I went on to go to the Tashi station to pick up some power converters. Perfect. Uh, And he said, he goes on, Luke goes on. I had been waiting to write in again until you guys got your invitations to the wedding, but recently Ben wrote an article about Hollywood's most ridiculous hunters, and he chose Joe Pesci. I couldn't help but wonder if if perhaps my email dismounting little dildo Saggins may have planted that seed. As hard as this is for me to admit, 
for reasons that Ben knows. I believe Cal was right in his views that having you read my email with all the jokes included on air was the best thing to do about said problem. Again, the conflict between family members. And there have been no issues since. So thanks to you, Phil. You give me a lot of undeserved credit on this show, and it's, uh, it's why I stick around. I don't know about you, but I think that's a celebration worthy of fireworks, much like Bilbo's 111th birthday. <laughs> of course I am joking, but as you learned from my previous email, I can't let the opportunity to mock the vertically inferior pass me by. Anyhow, in previous shows, you've had other listeners write in to share their experiences in handling the various quarantine guidelines and how it has affected their day-to-day. Since March, when lockdowns and changes have started in Nebraska, Lisa and I have closed on our house, moved in together, listed and sold my old house, and continued to plan a wedding that we have no idea if it will be legal to have. Normally, I would scoff at these safety ordinances. I'm an industrial electrician. Every day I go to work would be my last. And honestly, after you shared a porta potty with 100 strangers on a job site, there's not many germs left that scare you. That's, that's true. That's true. There was just a there was just a construction site in Big Sky where there were 116 positive yeah, COVID cases because they were all sharing the same porta potty. <laughs> he goes on to say, "I've seen things, man. Horrible things. <laughs> once, once we had job sites in other cities be locked down for outbreaks, I scoffed no more. I've gone from anxious and afraid to annoyed and angry and back again." It doesn't help that everywhere is burning and there's no source outside of THC that I can trust. My younger brother... <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Luke, no. No, Luke. <laughs> Use the force. My younger brother's fiance in her office was destroyed in downtown Lincoln during the riots. My father, who was a college football coach, was recently just allowed to resume his coaching duties after 12 weeks of wondering if there will ever be sports again. Needless to say, it has been an absolute shit show for this long-time listener. On the bright side, Lisa and I drew mule deer tags out west, and I drew an antelope tag as well. So instead of asking a question, what I would literally like to do is thank you all for your continuing to give people like me a break from the chaos that is our day-to-day lives. I've enjoyed every single episode you've put out, and I'm sure I'll continue to do so. You guys at Meat Eater, especially you, Phil, may not be the heroes we deserve, but you're the ones we need. Hopefully, come December, I'll be able to write back about how great the wedding was, and how many people complimented the first light jacket I wore instead of a suit. Who knows? Now I'm off to enjoy a salty Gilbert. You stay classy. Phil. That was a great email. Love forever and always, Luke. P.S. Post a script. In a completely unrelated note, I wanted to tell you, Phil, that your cat's names are awesome. I can tell you are a kindred spirit, as my cat's names are Penguin, Clyde Frog, and Baxter. <laughs> although he goes by Tuna because he is in excess of 30 pounds. Those are those are good cat names. Ben, what do you think of those uh, pet names? Horseshit. Yep. I yeah. thought you'd say that. It should be just be like Bridger, Coulter. It's uh, all mountain men names. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'd be looking for out of my cats. What were your cats' names again? Meatloaf and Kevin. <laughs> I mean, that, said together like that, I'm into it. Okay, good. I'm into it. All right. Well, thank you, Luke. Good luck on the wedding. Thanks for checking back in. Uh, all right. Episode five, Work Sharps, Not So Sharp Moments. Play the jingle, Phil. Work Sharp. Not so sharp moments, sharp so you don't have to be. Season two! Yeah! All right, this is a good one. We're going to run through this quick because we got to get to Ivan. Um, Mike Pugh, P E U H. Anybody wrote this, the phonetic spelling out for me? P E W, Mike Pugh. He says, I just returned from a much needed vacation with my wife, my two boys. Let me, a quick aside before we get to Mike's story. Do you, should we give out people's full names? I think if they provide them, 
Yeah, I mean it's their their fault. I would provide they their knew email that address. we would. They knew they. You're part of this. You're trying to get read on this podcast. So. That's true. Okay, sorry. We went down to the Florida Keys with our boat and stayed in our favorite hotel for about a week. The hotel sits on a very narrow channel that gets extremely shallow at low tide. My sons aren't quite old enough to drive the boat, and my wife has no desire to ever learn. The majority of the boating responsibilities fall on my shoulders. So, like any good Keys vacation, there was some heavy drinking involved in the evenings, which would cause me to get up in the middle of the night and drink about a gallon of tap water. I'm sure most of you can relate. However, if you've ever been to the Keys, you know there is a unique smell to the tap water. Yes, I've been to the Keys many times. When I fillet the day's catch, I have a habit of eating some raw as a snack to hold me over until I cook dinner, which is generally completely safe given the right considerations. I believe it was a combination of tap water and the poorly handled raw fish and heavy drinking that led to the following events. I mean, it sounds totally on the line to me. I don't think anything could go wrong. No, it sounds sounds like everything's great in your stomach at this point. One day, we wanted to anchor up at the sandbar after fishing. It's a short distance away from our hotel, maybe a quarter mile. I got to the sandbar, cracked a beer, took a sip, then I jumped off to go set the anchor out. As soon as I bent over to put the anchor in the sand, I felt my stomach grumble and my butt cheeks immediately clench. I knew something was wrong. Like, really wrong. I needed to shit, and I needed to shit now. This was not normal bubble guts, or BGs, I call them. My first instinct was to wade out deep into the water and take care of business, but the current was not in favor of the other sandbar attendees. Smart. I quickly had my wife and kids load back into the boat for a speedy run back to the hotel. As I mentioned before, the channel is narrow and shallow, especially at low tide. As I was navigating the channel making the last turn, another boat approached, which was generally no biggie, but my butthole muscle gave out, and I began to shit. This seems like the climax of the story. Okay. (laughs) I looked at my wife, and she instantly knew I was starting to shit. I threw... I threw the boat in neutral and hurled myself off the boat and held on while the initial blast took place inside my shorts. The water at this point was about waist high and littered with, you guessed it, jellyfish. That lay oh my God. That lay calmly at the bottom until disturbed. Well, I disturbed them. The oncoming boat had just seen this and adjusted according into deeper water. I'm now shitting my brains out, trying to keep the boat from getting stuck in the shallow water and devising a plan for getting back on the boat without getting shit everywhere, then back into the hotel room without everyone noticing my shit-filled shorts or shit running down my legs. Meanwhile, the jellyfish are now in full sting mode. (sighs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know know how this ends, but this has got to be in the top three, not so sure so far. I told my wife to grab a towel while I stripped my shorts and began to jump back into the boat. Shitty ass flapping in the wind. Just as I'm getting my butt up into the air, a lady, some might call her Karen, made it a point to come out of her third story balcony and instruct me where the channel was. I politely said I was aware as I stood up butt naked with a shitty jellyfish stung ass. (laughs) Oh, Karen. Oh, mind you, I probably could have tossed a beer to someone on the dock from where we were. We were very close to the hotel dock. I just couldn't hold it. It's not like I gave up. My butthole just failed to stay closed. 
I successfully docked the boat and walked up to the room, only, only wearing a towel, showered, and headed back to the sandbar to finish my beer. That's the most triumphant part of this. The fact that he wasn't so ashamed Mm-mm. and so in pain by the jellyfish sting on his ass that he didn't just like watch a golf match or something and stay. Yeah, I'd say it's I'd say it's it's noble. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's just another shit in your pants story or a not so sharp moment. You be the judge. Thanks for a great podcast and keep up the work. All from Mr. Pew, Mr. Mike Pew. Play the jingle, Phil. Work sharp, not so sharp moments, sharp so you don't have to be. Season two! Yeah! Man. Uh, I, yeah. That's up there. <laughs> that's up there. And this one has a lot of visual elements where you can picture yep. him just trying to climb back in the boat, just welts and you, you and feces. That was a rough one. That was a rough one. And I the, I grew up going to the Keys. My family had a house down there, vacation house growing up. And then I stayed down there a while after I graduated. And um, the Keys is a forgiving place, though. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of drunk people doing a lot of drunk things down in the Keys. Mm-hmm. So this was probably, you know, a three on the on the one to ten scale of crazy oh, really? shit you see in the Keys. Yes. Yeah, okay, so. well, remind me to stay away from the Florida Keys then. <laughs> anyway, Mike, uh, you, for all this, uh, <laughs> should be ashamed of yourself and and... And um, apologize to your family, but also you're going to get a work sharp, field sharpener for your efforts. As always, go to WorkSharp's YouTube channel. Check out their weekly hot tips on how to sharpen your knife over there at WorkSharp. Now we have to get to the most important thing of the day. Phil, um, what you're about to hear from Ivan, you're about to hear um, the opportunity for you and I to be a part of a brain study. Yes, you uh, you asked me something about this. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what you'll hear it in the interview. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to. You know, break any news here. But there's a chance that they could study my brain and Phil's brain and compare the two. Meaning, I'm hoping. This is what I'm hoping that, as I described to Ivan, this is what I would hope for, is that they would hook m- me up to some you know brain monitoring device. Hook you up to a similar, if not identical brain monitor device and mm-hmm. show us pictures of different animals yep. to see how my predatory brain would react and how your non-hunting soft mushy brain sure would react that's one way to, to put it yeah yeah huh? yeah um what do you think that sounds that sounds fascinating i'd love to do it but uh what if this study takes place after you take me hunting and i might my brain just gets well, what completely if we do a, rewired yeah what if we do a before and after study Oh, okay. Because you've already been motivated by the Chuck Norris. That's true. And the David Hasselhoff. The, yeah. Yeah. The. Um, and so maybe your brain already is starting to shift. But I imagine, I do imagine, like, I, and I think about this legitimately, if they showed me a, like a rutting bull elk bugling across the meadow, I would be immediately thinking of shot placement um, or where I had to get to cut him off. And you mm-hmm. would probably be like, well, one, look at the, well, wonderful. Look at the flowers. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful meadow. Look at the. Yeah. Peaks in the back, snow-covered peaks, glacial peaks in the back. Exactly. Um, so maybe we'll get there. Yeah, and I'd say vice versa, you know, if they showed me a picture of like a PlayStation Platinum Trophy <laughs> and I showed it to you, like, I'd probably start sweating. And, and I'd be like, I don't know what you're like, looks, I don't know what that is. I've never looks, even heard of it. It looks nice. You should, yeah, clean that up a little bit. Um, all right, well, here we're going to go. We're going to get to Ivan, and what I, I, I said a little bit earlier, I do think all the silliness, all the things, all the shit stories <laughs> aside, 
this is the the this is the quintessential THC episode where we talk about all kinds of random stuff, Chuck Norris and shit stories, and then we move on to a neuroscientist. Here's our friend Ivan D. Araujo. Ivan, how are you, sir? I am great, thank you. Well, thanks for coming on. I, I think we have a lot to learn. I know I have a lot to learn, so excuse some of my questions that sound that are coming from a layman's perspective. But before we get into neurology and predatory behavior and trying to understand the brains of ourselves as predators and, and predatory animals that we know uh, and so interested in, um, tell us how you got started in neurology and, and the study of uh, predation, moreover. Yeah, so I started out by analyzing um, uh, brain images of humans during feeding behavior. So my actual background, more than biology, is in computer science, and I I, um, I did work on AI, and uh, and I started out on my PhD by analyzing uh, uh, magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, brains of humans during feeding behavior. So that's how I got mm. into the field of feeding behavior. So I got really interested in it because feeding is basically the most important behavior of all classes of behaviors. Without food, you can't do anything else. You cannot um, fight your enemies. You cannot uh, mate to procreate and everything else is secondary if you don't have enough energy. So I got fascinated by how much of the brain is taken by this very basic behavior. So I got into this field by, by analyzing humans. I studied how the human brain codes for tastes, aromas, and flavors, and things like that. And then I moved into more experimental models later on where we studied with more detail the circuitry of of the brain that controls this type of behavior but that's basically how i got into it i i had this more quantitative background that led me to a laboratory that was specialized in feeding but needed someone to look at these um images and uh, that's how i started yeah i mean i'd love to to kind of go through what you learn studying the human brain and feeding. I mean, I know there's so much that that we don't know and there's so much activity that we do that's just inherent that we don't understand the function of. And so what you know, what are the top line things that you found out as you as you look at those brains and look at those MRIs and, and kind of study what feeding means for neurology? Yeah, I think one one thing that may sound not very exciting, but in some way it is, is that the human brain is extremely similar to the primate brain in terms of which areas encode or respond for food stimuli. So we have a very direct homology between the human brain and the primate brain. And then because the primate brain is also related to other, uh, let us say, lower species, then we can clearly see that uh, the human brain preserved um, a lot of the, let us say, the, the old circuitry associated with feeding. So clearly we are a product of uh, millions of years of evolution and a lot of the circuit is conserved, right? So th this is one aspect that is very clear 
Another one, I think, is the fact that, or is the importance that things like memory and uh, and the subjective evaluations play in our appreciation of food. So the way memories, even childhood memories, and uh, influences by cognitive cues, like what people tell you, and especially like the time of the day, these are very important factors that influence a lot the way the brain responds to food. So, um, so I think these two properties, the, 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 um, the conservation of, uh, I mean, with regards to other species and also the influence of other factors like the memory and the time of the day, these are very marked and a very clear um, 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 modulators of how the brain responds to food. Yeah. Is there, as you, as you start to think about that, because you explain the circuitry that remains from our ancestors and through our evolution, modern eating is so different and it's, you know, we're so wired to eat for comfort. We eat for a lot of different reasons. How does, a, yes. how does the brain handle that, the change in motivation, I guess maybe the a good way to describe it from from the evolutionary eating eating for hunger and eating for survival to eating for the reasons we do in the more modern sense yeah exactly so this is a very complicated question and uh, <clears throat> and it's a very interesting one and a lot of people believe that this is at the heart of the reasons for why we develop obesity and diabetes at uh, epidemiological levels right so I think one idea that cleared out over the years, and, and it's very consistent, is that we still use our primitive brain, the brain that was important for survival in early evolution in our modern society, right? So the brains that evolved to take the opportunity to get food whenever available is still operating in this modern environment where we have a surplus of food, right? So mm. if we look at feeding behavior um, in, the, in nature, and uh, when we get into the hunting story, this is going to become more clear. Eating behavior is a very opportunistic behavior, right? And the reason is that rather than letting hunger or your physiological need to control your behavior, the best strategy for survival is to take food whenever it is available, right? So, mm. because what you want to survive is to, is to store energy in your body. In, in, in mammals, it's mainly by accumulating fat tissue, right? So the chances of survival in times of scarcity uh, increase a lot if you are able to store energy inside your own body so that you can use it when you cannot have uh, food, external food available. So the, the, this property of the brain that let animals survive in nature is still pretty much alive in our, uh, uh, in our modern lives. So whenever we have the opportunity to eat, even if your, our bodies do not demand energy, we are going to eat, right? So you may be crossing 
like you may be walking down a street and you are thinking about something else, about your next podcast or something, and then suddenly you see a sign that appeals to you, like uh, some uh, bakery or a certain restaurant, and suddenly you feel this urge to eat, right? Mm. Or you see uh, something sweet in front of you, even without you having any feelings of hunger or nutritional uh, uh, deficiency, you you are going to think it is a good idea or you're going to find it irres irresistible. So this property of taking the opportunity to store energy whenever available is, um, is very important for survival and is what is leading us to this overweight or and obesity epidemic because basically we take the opportunity to eat even when we don't need to. And now because it's so easy to have food, we can have food at any time, we can order, we can go to the supermarket. Um, the, 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 um, then we, we just go for this surplus of food basically because the old brain circuitry is, is still there operating as if we were in a, in a more uh, difficult situation in a time of scarcity. Yeah. Is there, is there a different satisfaction, you know, in the, in the evolutionary sense? Because obviously if you're, you know, if you were a early hunter, you're the satisfaction you got from eating was one survival. You knew you could get to the next meal, but now the satisfaction we get is, is seems more pleasure based. Um, as I try to just like work through, you know, what you're saying in the, the modern, the modern way we mm -hmm. eat as opposed to how we evolve. Yeah, this is yeah, this is another complicated question, and and it comes back to the uh, notion that I mentioned about memories, right? So one property that animals developed, and that includes humans, that is very clear, very conserved, and very robust, is to learn about nutrients. So when we eat something that has calories or is very nutritive, we are going to remember it. And, uh, and uh, the, the advantage we get out of uh, the energy somehow transforms in our brain in the ability to find something pleasant, right? So, for example, there are classical experiments showing that if you give an animal a boring flavor, say some weak grape juice with no calories, right? And then you let the animal drink this, but you pair this drinking with the infusion of nutrients directly into the stomach, then the animal will develop a very strong uh, pleasure or motivation to eat this, this boring drink in the future, right? <clears throat> so when we associate energy with something that we eat, we attribute reward to this component that is paired with, uh, with calories, right? So a lot of what we call pleasure-based eating is ac actually derives from the fact that in the past we ate these foods, we acquired the energy, the brain reward system detected this energy and formed this association between that food and the physiological advantage, the survival advantage. And we developed these preferences that we think are 
innate. We think that things taste good innately, but there is a lot of learning going on throughout our lives that build up this feeling of pleasure over time. Yeah, this is I, this question. I can't help but ask it now. This was kind of the ultimate mm-hmm. question I was thinking of mm-hmm. among among a few ultimate questions actually. But when when I kill when I go out and kill an elk, for example, if I just take my own experience, I go kill an elk. I have this challenge where I, the game like quality of of a basically a predator and prey interaction where I kill this elk, I cut it up, I bring it home, I butcher it at my house, I freeze it, I get it out, I thaw it, I cook it, I eat it. I always explain, mm-hmm. and many hunters will, will relay this same experience where it's so there's so much more pleasure in eating it. The taste is magnified or amplified. You feel mm-hmm. something way different than if you just went to the store and purchased that a same a similar chunk of meat. It's certainly mm-hmm. elk meat. Certainly looks more robust, more nutrient based. It's certainly, mm-hmm. f- and it gives you a, a different energy. And so I wonder if if part of that is this nutrient reward you're talking about, or or something else based yes, on it is. the activity. Yeah, yeah. This is very interesting. I don't think there is a lot of um, research exactly on that. But but the but the as I was mentioning in the beginning. The, the uh, ability of the brain to sense a, a, a taste and our ability to derive pleasure from it is uh, uh, highly dependent on the associations that we form, right? So all this cycle of behaviors you described from capturing a prey and eating it and, and absorbing the nutrients, this, all, all these elements... Um, involve the brain reward circuitry, right? So they um, reinforce each other into a, a pattern of sequential behaviors that, that become a unit, right? So the ability to this, this greater pleasure that you may derive by eating this food that was, let us say, obtained through capture is associated with the the, the, the pleasure that is uh, linked to all the other parts of the behavior, the, the capture itself, the obtaining of the nutrients, the gut sensing of the nutrients, and so on. So I think that, as I mentioned, this, this um, conscious perception of a better taste is actually modulated by a number of unconscious processes, some of them coming from the gut, that um, increase the reward value of a taste in such a way that we consciously attribute this greater pleasure to the taste itself, to the chemical that we have in the mouth. But this is pretty much a central process that is influenced by other events that took part, uh, that took place in, in, uh, at different moments. Yeah, I don't know if that makes it better or ruins it. <laughs> but at least well, I'm, I'm, I guess, glad yeah. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, to know exactly, more. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, and, and then there are all the, the, the type of cognitive influences that you may, um, that may influence that, uh, that impression you have, yes. Yeah. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where 
land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses interstate Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com. Use their store locator and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. I think that's that is is the core question that we talk about on the show a lot. Why do we why in the modern sense do we hunt when we don't need to? Um, mm-hmm. Why why do we feel so satisfied by it? Why is it so fulfilling? Essentially, why is there so much value? Mm-hmm. Place in this. Why are yeah. we so? Why why are we we so fueled by this act? Both the activity and the end result. Yeah, I think that um, it, it is very similar to uh, the question of why we have we feel pleasure out of eating something when we don't need to eat, right? So that's basically because all feeding behaviors are intrinsically linked to. Uh, the parts of the brain that control reward and pleasure. So every aspect of eating produces this pleasure even when we do not have the physiological need. So the question of why someone would hunt and kill and, and feel this appeal, I believe it's very similar to the question of why someone would have dessert even after a large meal it's because the circuits that uh, uh, operate feeding are is still very much alive in our brains, and uh, and um, and they they haven't not been selected out. Yeah, and it, that's many people that are opposed to hunting in the modern sense are say that you know there's this 
ego, killing, and pleasure are all connected, and that's that becomes like there's some sadistic elements to it, and there's an unhealthy connection between this pleasure and this death, and that's something that is so extremely complicated. Um, but it's it's you know from a neurological perspective, or even from as you're mentioning now an evolution perspective, it starts to make a little more sense when we think about it from your framing. Yeah, exactly. So clearly this behavior is something that exists in nature and is important for survival and certainly survived or was conserved in the primate brain. And uh, and the, the question, of course, uh, that uh, b- becomes a more society-related question is um, how much of it is justifiable these days. But I think that the that the behavior itself is just part of a a very old pattern of behaviors that were essential for survival. And without hunting, we probably wouldn't be here, right? So without this ability to obtain energy that moves around, that that um, was a very important step in in um, in evolution. Um, of course, there are uh, theories. In, in psychiatry, for example, that associate predatory aggression to, to, to uh, premeditated aggression or aggression against the target that is not attacking you. So there are a number of um, situations where people can make links to, uh, uh, let us say, psychopathology. But clearly the, the hunting behavior was there for a reason and emerged in evolution to uh, propel the survival of a very large number of species. Yeah. Is there a point where you believe that evolutionary link could be broken? Like those those circuits that you mentioned earlier on could be you kind of erased or, or deadened enough in our in our neurology that we're no longer, you know, thinking in this way or rewarded in this way? Yeah, this is yeah, this is also interesting. So there are a number of um uh, theoretical discussions about whether certain aspects of our, our feeding behavior may be selected out either because they are no longer needed, right? So we don't need to use uh, brain areas anymore for things that we don't use. And uh, also um, the, the health impact of our modern feeding habits may actually impact on our ability to survive in the long term. So people have ideas about obesity and diabetes influencing uh, the the selection of organisms in terms of their uh, dietary uh, preferences, right? But so far, um, these these traits have not disappeared or we, 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 we haven't been around long enough for these traits to be selected out. Some modifications uh, in, in, in our uh, head clearly seem to indicate that the, the, the mode of hunting changed and our, um, and our uh, food preferences changed and that affected the, the uh, genetic background of humans. Like for example, the the, the, the size and the shape of the jaws, right, and the, the facial muscles, they are less um, uh, specialized in, in, in uh, tearing apart objects like other animals, like, say, cats or, or dogs, but we have 
these very strong molars and premolar teeth that are, are, are very optimal for, say, mastication and the uh, uh, trituration of uh, plants and so on. So there are some slow modification that happens um, over thousands of years, and it may be that this trait, this pleasure that we derive out of foods without physiological need may eventually disappear. But so far, it does seem that our brains um, uh, are very much like the ones of humans when they were surviving in the savannas and making the most out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly interesting. We've talked about this on the show before where my I have a three-year-old son and he when he picks up a rock, he throws it. <laughs> and that <laughs> I never told him throw it or don't throw it. I never told him what the consequences of throwing it would be. And we've had other folks on that say, "Well, that's that's coming from that's how we evolved to, you know, survive yes. and to eat and to affect the world around us was to throw things." Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's very important that these behaviors are not let us say, do not require excessive planning is something almost automatic or instinctive, right? And that obviously increases the efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it seems to me that our instincts in that way, especially when killing animals and eating them or, you know, those predatory behaviors, are they're pretty robust. Like the, over millions of years, mm -hmm. they've remained in our circuitry. Um, yes. You know, and so that balance between like from the Industrial Revolution, when we start to soften that, those desires and, and make them obsolete in some way. It's, it's, it seems it's, it's good to hear from you that they're, they're robust enough within our evolution that, that you think they'll remain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, that, that, that it's a very um, almost universal behavior. There are some species that adapted out, um, but the, 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 the evolution of the jaw, right? It's very intrinsically linked to the ability to hunt other animals. And that conferred for reasons that are not totally clear, an incredible evolutionary advantage if, to animals that developed this, this new articulation in the head that we call a jaw. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, and one of the reasons, the reasons why I first read your original paper that we talked about, and we'll get into that here momentarily, was that I went a couple of weeks ago uh, out to Yellowstone National Park here in, in Montana, and we tracked a mountain lion uh, with a park mm -hmm. biologist. And we went and, and looked at some kill sites and we talked about, you know, how these predators move across the landscape, their territories, their habits you know, their biology, their, the ecology of the situation. And it started to click to me, like, how does their brains work? What is happening here to propel them um, in, a, in a predatory sense? In this case, this mountain lion had killed 17 ungulates within a two-month period. Um, wow. And so, you know, it really propelled me to think more, is there some study of, of the brains of predators to tell us what's happening and then explain to us maybe along the way, why we feel about mm -hmm. them the way we do and if those feelings mm -hmm. are correct. Because just um, if you allow me an explanation of how I think it plays out in our community, mm -hmm. one side of the fence often thinks of predators as a competition for the modern hunter, right? You're killing the, all the elk. That mountain lion is killing all the elk or the wolves are killing all the elk. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to eliminate them or not to have them around. And there's another side that seems to celebrate a more... Um, top-down approach 
a more full ecosystem approach, like welcoming those predators. And then you also have the cohabitation elements of living around places where mountain lions live. That's not, you know, if your poodle gets eaten, that's not very pleasant. And so mm-hmm. we end up having that dichotomy in our, in our world where you either meet someone that completely abhors and hates predation and predators as somebody who seems to be more, a little bit more accepting of them or celebrating of them because they are charismatic and they are interesting to us. So that's kind of where I came from. I don't know where you want to mm-hmm. start with all, where you think the best place to start with understanding what it is, mm-hmm. but you, you sent me a book called The Ethology of Predation mm-hmm. and it starts in the introduction by just talking about what is predation and how do we? How would we describe it? And I think maybe that's a that's a good place to kind of get your you know your initial thoughts on. Yeah, I I, I think th- th- this is a um, um, a very interesting topic, and we we um, don't know much about it, right? So what we um, what seems to be clear is that predation has been part of a alimentary class of behaviors. They have some intrinsic or innate um, patterns associated with it that are ingrained in the brains of many animals. So if we look at studies performed in the past on species that are, let us say, simpler in terms of their brains or how their brain operates, especially reptiles that sometimes are fierce hunters, we are going to see that there are some aspects of the sensory world that are very important triggers for the display of the hunting behavior. So in some species, just the detection of something moving is uh, sufficient to trigger hunting behaviors. And in many cases, an evaluation of the size of this moving object. So when animals see a certain pattern of biological movement and uh, uh, they assess that the size of this object is relatively small, then there is almost as if there is an automatic trigger for the display of predation, right? So um, as I said before, the, the, the stimulus to hunt does not seem to come from the physiological need of the body, but from an appeal that comes from outside. Mm. And, uh, and this, this display of the behavior engages the brain reward circuitry through a number of connections. So this uh, um, automatic motor behavior that is triggered by the detection of a moving prey is um, uh, reinforced or enhanced by the activation of neurons that are responsible for the feelings of pleasure, let us say. Yeah. So, um, so that's basically, I think that would be the, the, the simplest way to understand how the behavior is generated and why it produces the subjective feelings that it does, because evolution somehow selected circuits that whenever a prey-like stimulus is present, the a whole uh, pattern of neuronal activations is initiated, and that involves both the display of a very well-defined 
series of motor behaviors, but also the engagement of these um, neurotransmitters in the brain that are uh, uh, very important for the sensing of uh, pleasure and, uh, and reinforcement. Yeah, this, this, as I was reading about this, it, something struck me. You know, it was explained that like pre- if you're thinking about predation, if you're thinking one animal feeding on an animal feeding on something, or essentially one animal feeding or on another, what you're saying, I think, is that you know, it's the consequence of the action of predation that kind of sets it apart because there's mutilation mm-hmm. or or destruction of an animal that is offering resistance um, mm-hmm, against mm-hmm. being discovered or being harmed, and a par- yes. and then the comparison made to like a parasite is also looking to harm or eventually kill what it's feeding on, but it's not looking for that resistance. It's not. It's actually looking to keep its host alive long enough to complete, exactly. complete the life cycle. So that's, that's something that struck me about understanding predation. It does have this element of hunting and resistance baked in. Yes, exactly. That, that's the, yeah, that's exactly that. And, the, and the, the, this resistance element is probably, let us say, automatically detected by the brain by the moving pattern, right? So the, the prey is the escape and you want to overcome their, the, the, the escaping skills of the prey by performing an even more optimal motor sequence that will lead you to capture the prey. And, uh, and that, that trait, that link between detecting biological movement that you can interpret as a type of resistance and the production of motor behavior seems to be an element that is basically the core of hunting behaviors that we find from insects to to higher uh, uh, vertebrates. Yeah, and it, and it was also interesting to to read a little bit and learn a little bit about the the difference between types of predation or types of predators, specialists and generalists, and how those specialists yes. and generalists kind of manifest in as a type of like, well, maybe there's more food, maybe there's less food as a response maybe to their environment. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So then you have the a whole layer of um, of uh, possibilities, right? That are basically determined by the environment and the physiological need of the animal, right? So, for example, rodents they they um, they are hunters, unlike what people think. Even small rodents, they are very fierce hunters, but they will they will go for things like insects and uh, and uh, larvae and uh, other objects. So they tend to be more omnivore uh, compared to other species because they have a higher range of choices, right? Whereas, let us say, if you think of a big cat, what would be advantageous for them to hunt uh, is more restrict, right? Because they need more energy and uh, also they will develop skills and, and body features that fit the prey that live in their environment. So this basically construct of the, the, the brain coordinating different parts of the body, the jaw and the limbs, um, uh, will, is, is conserved. And then you have variations on how this is executed and when the behavior is triggered depending on the environment of the animal. Yeah, and it's there's a lot of a lot to this too. I you know we also looking at d- 
different types of hunting within the predatory world, like communal hunting. Um, I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing wolves would fall into that communal hunting structure where they hunt together. Yes. They coordinate mm-hmm. and maybe a mountain yes. lion, like the one that we saw in um, a Yellowstone is a solitary hunter. So maybe things are happening differently there in that circuitry. Can you talk a little bit about the behavioral aspects of, of success and what, and, and kind of how that all lines up? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we don't exactly know how these different strategies play in terms of how the brains are constructed, right? So, so different animals will develop different strategies. For example, some animals, they have the ability when they detect a prey to kind of freeze and become immobile so that they are not detected by the prey. So some species clearly have this uh, brain function that others do not display. The, the, the ability to hunt in groups is also very important. It seems to be essential for, prey, for hunters that is specialized in larger prey, right? So you need several of your own to... Um, to be able to overcome a large prey. So in some species like wolves, they seem to have developed the brain circuits that understand what the other members of your group are doing so that some sort of basic strategy is uh, on display um, whenever there is a hunting uh, behavior. And this seems to be particularly important for humans, right? So mm. when humans started to live in large communities and developed uh, communication skills, their, uh, the ability to overcome larger prey by cooperating developed, right? And that probably... Uh, some authors believe that this is related to the relatively small size of the human jaw, right? Because when you hunt in groups, you may be able to kill a large prey without having yourself to go and bite the neck of the prey, for example, and and, uh, and asphyxiated or or something like that. So so this um, ability to communicate, this development of a communicating brain changed hunting strategies, facilitated the development of new bones and new muscles in the head of, um, of humans. And, uh, and uh, um, we are still to understand exactly how the brain uh, encodes this ability in an efficient way, especially in, in uh, early hominids and, and including in primates, right? So mm-hmm. many uh, primates, they have been shown by ethologists to be able to hunt in groups and, uh, and they are very efficient, right? So, so this group as opposed to individual pre, pre, uh, hunting uh, took over primates or certain groups of primates and uh, and we still don't know exactly how the brain is able to um, operate this type of behavior. Yeah, and you think of as well like the variety of hunting tactics out there with with predators, um, mm-hmm. and thinking about how those things develop. There is this back and forth, right, about the prey species, um, many of which I hunt that are developing unique ways to avoid certain predators, right? Because we already 
kind mm-hmm. of establish that different predators. Some are general, some are opportunistic. We talked about that um, with Dr. Dan Staler a couple episodes ago, for those listening that remember that conversation, that wolves hunt so differently than, and they're not as good of hunters as mountain lions, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so they're developing both the prey and the predator are kind of trying to out-invent each other. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like right? an arms race. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There yeah. is a, yeah. yeah, I mean, people who study um, 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 hunting behavior in, in very specific ecological niches, they, they show, yeah, some incredible uh, back and forth between um, the predator and the prey overcoming um, each other and uh, in such a way that, um, yeah, there is a continuous arms race and that the, so if you are, uh, if you are not able to capture your prey, then you're going to die of hunger. Then uh, there is there must be some mutation that confers an, an advantage to a slightly different animal. So certainly the development of, for example, group hunting is certainly one of those situations where animals had to develop a new strategy, right, to, to overcome prey that they individually would not be able to. So, yeah, it's a very interesting back and forth. And even to study the specialization of sensory modalities in the nervous system, how uh, audition or vision develop, a lot of it, if not most of it, uh, is propelled by the ability to either hunt or escape a hunter. Yeah, we see that in, in, in the modern sense. I see that quite a lot where you see animals that are conditioned to do things and, and conditioning being a lot of what we end up experiencing as hunters, you put pressure on an animal in one way and moves and adapts to do something different. You put, you know, I've seen, I have, I've had a recent elk herd I've been tracking that last year they were up in the mountains this time of year, this year they're out in a field laying under a pivot in the summertime, mm-hmm. <laughs> having water sprayed on them from the agricultural pivot. And so you see yes. how that conditioning must be impacting everything that both of these things, you know, both predator and prey do. So we see it. I mean, yeah, I see it as exactly. a Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, for example, um, there are species of um, rodents and the lower animals that are very good in detecting the smell of the urine of certain classes of predators. And that scares them out. And they learn to avoid these niches in the future just because they detected the smell. So there are parts of the brain, yeah, that, uh, let us say, upon detection of a danger cue will condition the animal to change their behavior in the future. And, uh, and the, the better you are at it, the better your nervous system is in terms of um, uh, uh, detecting these cues, the more advantage you have against your opponent. Yeah, I, I think... It gets to, eventually gets to, I'm probably skipping ahead here a ways, but it's another one of the core questions that I had for you to see how you would would tackle this. We have often, we call it here charismatic megafauna, where we're attracted to bears, grizzly bears, and mountain lions, and mm-hmm. wolves, and these, these apex predators in these landscapes. We're more, we seem to be more attracted to them. Um, many of folks that are against hunting are most prominently against these types of of hunts you know there's Mm -hmm. a huge battle for wolves and for grizzly bears and different things of that nature here in the states Mm -hmm. so have you thought about why it is you know what is is it 
everything we've already discussed that that we're seeing ourselves in them, or is that just the how charismatic they are, how we can see them having come kind of humanistic activities? Um, you know, what what is it from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I am not sure. This is a good question, and uh, it's a great it's a great question that involves quite a bit of human psychology, right? Because when we think about charisma and other uh, uh, properties, we, we we certainly have some reflection about it that maybe other animals don't. I mean, I think one way to think about it is um, the, the, the realization of how wonderful these animals are um, when they are accomplished hunters, right? So, the, 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 an animal that is an accomplished hunter has such a number of extraordinary skills and, uh, and uh, personality traits, let us say, that we at least attribute to them that certainly influences the way we see them, right? So even, say, domestic cats, the, the, if you look at a, a, an animal like that, playing or trying to capture a bird or so the, the the precision of the movements the 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 ability that they have to perform extraordinary movements their fierce character i think just basic uh basically um produces on us a a um a, a, a feeling of amazement that uh, we over time, uh, uh, um, transform into some sort of protective feeling, mm. right? So I think it's basically the, the this raw fact that uh, the the accomplished hunters in nature are in many ways the most amazing or extraordinary species species out there, and uh, we can't help but um, um, detecting this, this amazing property. So that's how, how I think about it. It's just that they are extraordinarily incredible animals from a biological perspective. How much refinement and evolution is uh, intrinsic to the behavior of these animals. Yeah, that's a, that's a quite interesting point. And I, I love the way that you articulated that because there is this idea that we live, you know, and many comedians, friends of mine that, you know, Joe Rogan, a friend of mine has a, has a comedy bit about this little demon that lives in your house. That's a kitty cat. <laughs> and every time, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every time a potential prey bounces by the window, it's like, I remember. And it, and it is, <laughs> I can never do it as funny as he does it, but it's he's just saying that you know trying to make the the overall point that you're making I think that just is hey we have little predators running around our house that they they take shits in our in little boxes that we've made for them and we mm-hmm. and we think of those things differently than we think of a mountain lion or some other thing that that is, has the same baked in predatory instincts and so it's a you know that appreciation is just different yes exactly it, it is very different and and the, from a say a biolog a biologist perspective, like the uh, the 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 amount of um, of uh, precision that is uh, intrinsic to an animal like that is just amazing, and and I think the most amazing animals are uh, uh, became this way because they had to become 
uh, uh, very efficient hunters in their environment. So, so there is this link between how uh, incredible an animal is and how uh, much of a, a, a fierce hunter it, it is. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and then again, like, as I was saying about predators earlier, I wonder if there is like a, a similar, I don't know if you would say like disengagement or a similar like unhealthy idea because there's one side that says, I love these predators, we should never kill them, they belong in the landscape. And there's one side that says, I love, you know, I, I hate these predators, they're competing with mm-hmm. me, um, they're killing my livestock, they're, they're, the cohabitation just isn't working. And, and, mm-hmm. and each of those two perspectives, there seems like there's kind of an unhealthy connection present and even in our evolution. Yeah, this is a very interesting question because um, in principle, we would imagine that our brains should develop some sort of aversion to big predators because they are in principle a threat to us, right? So very often, uh, scary images are related to things that in some way or another uh, become um, associated with hunting. Like, so if you watch, say, terror movies, very often you're going to see that the scariest images are related to the display of jaws and teeth, and especially a very focused look at you, right? So things that look very threatening, usually they have their eyes focusing on you, and in many cases they have jaws, so they can... These movie producers, they can make a little girl look very scary when they look at you and they have big jaws and big teeth. So somehow the fear and the aversion to hunting animals is um, encoded in our brains, right? And, uh, but at the same time, um, we developed this appreciation, this maybe a sense of imitation or, or our... Uh, innate uh, interest in learning new skills that is that is highly developed in in larger animals like us. So yeah, th- there is this dichotomy there, and I think this divide in the community may actually um, let us say reflect these two uh, um, uh, opposing. Uh, 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 properties mm-hmm. that hunters may evoke in the brain. On one hand, fear, because we shouldn't be close to them, but on the other hand, the need to use them as examples for learning uh, uh, skills, right? That, that, and this is very human. Humans like to learn uh, new skills almost innately. Kids are always doing this, and many animals do, like... Uh, If you see cats playing, they basically play like they were hunting. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in they got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want land.com isn't just about buying and selling it's about finding a place to hunt fish explore or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets so head over to land.com today 
to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses Interstate. Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com, use their store locator, and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. Are you on Instagram at all, Ivan? You ever been on Instagram? No, no, I, I no, not really. I mean, <laughs> I didn't expect I, that I don't you know were. Why? But yeah, <laughs> uh, you, you're too busy working on things that are important. My my kids are. I mean, they keep telling me about things, and I I don't know. I think <laughs> I I probably lost the password five minutes after I tried <laughs> to. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, there's something on there called Nature Is Metal, and it's a account that's fairly mm. famous. Where it's just an account that shows the most gruesome aspects of of nature. You know, it's a it's a mm-hmm. seal getting getting chomped on by a killer whale. It's a wolf eating. Uh, deer while it's still alive. It's it's just kind of painting the picture for folks that nature isn't all cartoons. It isn't all, you know. It, mm-hmm. There's so much gruesome parts of nature, and then you know. So that's one side that kind of illustrates the point you're making. And then the other one that I would choose is there. I follow several prominent wildlife photographers who show this beautiful animal, say a bear playing with cubs or a bear. Uh, mm-hmm. pawing at the water for to, to capture salmon. And they're kind of like displaying the beauty of these animals. And then you have, as the dichotomy we're trying to explain, I think here, nature is metal, which is there to say like, yeah, they're beautiful, but look at how awful this actual act of survival and predation is, you know, for the prey. And so I, mm-hmm. I, think, mm-hmm. it, I think what you're saying plays out in our society, you know, we, and we see it every day. We see people kind of setting up both of those straw men to say, like, you know, look how look how gruesome, look how beautiful. Yeah, exactly. I think these two these two things survive in our brain. And if you think about it, they are both important for survival, right? So you want to escape, you want to be scared 
um, of something that may eat you, of course. But on the other hand, if, if, if you want to compete in an environment for the same prey, you would rather learn from those who do it better than you. And uh, I think like in somewhat subconscious way, these two influences like uh, play out when we evaluate how much we like certain animals. Yeah, that's it's one of the core questions I was wondering if you could help me suss out a little bit. And it's it's absolutely makes total sense what you're saying. And I think hopefully for everybody listening, as we continue to go through these examinations of predator-prey interactions and the importance of these predators and ecosystems that that we that we just think back to this because I think this is a huge, huge important point that you know examines who we are and what we value and kind of is an is a weird psychological experiment to see how you approach predators and what you think about predators out there in the world. Um, you know, I think that tells a lot about the person that's talking or the person that's examining that that predator. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it, yeah, this is my, my, my opinion, but that's how I think about it. No, yeah. it's, I think it's really valuable. So uh, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, but we have to actually get to the part of the brain that mm-hmm. you really works, this feeding behavior you talked about, you know, talking about how our jaws work. Um, it, it, forgive me if I butcher this, but it's the center, central amygdala. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, exactly. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the the amygdala and what it does. Yes, so the amygdala is um, part of a um, what use it to be called the limbic brain, sometimes the reptile brain, um, meaning that it's an area that is found in almost every species and any vertebrate species, right? Unlike, for example, the more developed parts of the frontal cortex that are very human or at least primate specific, we have some parts of the brain that have been there forever, let us say, since the beginning of the vertebrate lineage. So the amygdala has this name because it has an almond shape, almond-like shape. If you look at the brain, you can find it deep in the brain. It's very characteristic. And it has different subparts, right? So one of the the way uh, anatomists like make their living is by subdividing these things and and giving them complicated names, right? So um, so one subpart of this almond shaped part of the brain is the uh, central amygdala because of its location and so on. So this central amygdala is a very interesting area. So as I said, it's evolutionarily very old and it's traditionally linked to fear behavior. People believe that this area is very important for the display of fear, like freezing or escape behaviors. However, when we were looking more carefully at the anatomy of this area, we noticed that it's a very important important area for the control of the jaw. So it, um, I'm not going to get into boring details, but basically the, the, the arms of this, the, the cells in this part of the brain go down into the brainstem and somehow they control the motor neurons that open and close the jaw 
and allow the muscles of the jaw to imprint force on objects, right? So essentially what we noticed is that by looking at the anatomy and looking at some older uh, studies, looking at the activity in this area, we found that uh, these neurons, this part of the brain is essential for predatory behavior. So when we selectively destructed the neurons in this area in mice, they were completely incompetent in uh, their ability to hunt an insect. They could not kill the insect, they could not capture, and uh, so they, they, um, they became completely unable to hunt. So that was uh, very obvious. They, they, these neurons, this small group of neurons, is very important for the efficiency with which the animals hunt. On the other hand, when we did the opposite, when we overactivated these neurons, then we were able to produce the display of hunting behaviors even in inappropriate situations, right? So for example, we got a little toy, uh, one of these toys like a, that looks like a bug, we put it moving in front of the mice. The mice were scared initially of it, but as soon as we used some techniques to specifically turn on these neurons, the animals went and uh, ran after the toy and uh, were biting the toy uh, in an attempt that looked like uh, they were trying to kill it, right? So they basically, this small group of neurons, it's very important for the ability of the body to coordinate different muscles and display these very stereotypical behaviors, right? And what is more incredible is that even if you take an animal that is not a hunter, that never hunted a laboratory mouse, for example, that never hunted an insect or anything like it, the activation of these neurons will, will be sufficient to make the animal display the hunting behavior, meaning that this behavior is somehow innately encoded in the brain of these animals. Yeah, like it, it, so you're telling me that you could like give me, you could activate my neurons and make me a better hunter? <laughs> well, yeah, that's, the, that's a great, no, this is a great question because we don't really know um, the extent to which these uh, brain areas changed over evolution, right? So, for example, as we were saying in the beginning, uh, um, humans, they, they developed this ability to say to, to hunt in larger groups, right? We have a central amygdala. It's very well conserved. It responds to a number of emotional stimuli, but the extent to which, let us say, the jaw is controlled by the amygdala versus, say, vocalization, that is very important for hunting, right? may be different between animals, like the amygdala, because these areas that control the jaw, in addition to biting and killing, they are, of course, very important for communicating because we need to move the jaw, the tongue, the tongue, etc. So it may be that this area took slightly different functions as the type of hunting behavior changes uh, in different species. 
Yeah, it's, it's incredibly interesting. I, I say that kind of in jest, but then again, I'm interested in the, the functionality of how within those mice that you were testing in a lab, how do you activate and then deactivate those neurons? What's the process? Yeah, so this is a process that uh, um, um, developed over the last 10, 15 years. And um, when I was starting out uh, many years ago, I participated in some of the early experiments uh, involving this technique. So basically, there is a, a way now to stimulate neurons with very high precision known as optogenetics. So it means that we use light to activate neurons. So the idea is basically the following. We uh, uh, take a gene from algae that is sensitive to, to light at certain frequencies, more commonly a blue light. So this gene, this protein that lives in algae uh, is sensitive to light. So we can take that gene, put it in a virus, and uh, by injecting the virus in the brain, we can make neurons express that protein, okay? So the neurons that usually don't care about, say, blue light, they become sensitive to, the, they become sensitive to light because they now have this protein in their outer coat. And this protein basically uh, uh, allows for changes in the electrical activity of cells. So basically what we do is we express this gene in neurons and we place an optical fiber over the neurons so we can control laser pulses with high temporal precision and we can activate and deactivate within milliseconds as a given a pre-selected group of neurons. And, uh, and, and that's how we do it. So it's a big step forward compared to the old method for stimulation, which was basically to place a wire in the brain and deliver currents to it. That is much less precise because the current is spread over large areas. So, so this is the, the technique that now many groups use to, to manipulate uh, exogenously, let us say, the activity of a certain groups of neurons that you want to control. Is there, this is something I'm thinking of, and this may be too sci-fi for me, and you may just tell me that's that's never going to happen, but as I was thinking about this originally, I was I'm wondering if there was a way to examine my my brain, say like stasis, or my brain just as a, in a normal walking down the street, and then what's happening in my brain, particularly probably mm-hmm. the center amygdala, of when when I release an arrow and I know it hit its target, or when I mm-hmm. you know finally come up because I've experienced wild emotions um, when it comes to killing an animal for food, mm-hmm. um, wild wild emotions, tears, uh, uncontrollable laughter, just celebration like nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. I felt the feelings of community and connection with other human beings, I feel are a little bit more concrete in these activities. And I always wondered, is there a way to like, what's happening in my brain during those moments? And then what's happening as I'm just hanging out podcasting with you? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, I mean, you, you, you could perform like a, 
Um, I don't know. I don't think this has been done, but you could perform, say, imaging studies where you somehow simulate in a scanner a situation where you would be in the in the hunting mode, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to be that to me that the um, this uh, uh, joy that you derive out of it is is the product of previous associations, right? Where the act itself becomes. Uh, 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 more and more strongly associated with the feeling of pleasure and there must be the involvement of uh, neurotransmitter systems that are related to pleasure and reward and so on. So I guess that like people have made studies like say, for example, people who have, I'm, I, I don't want to mean to compare the situation, but sure. Like, for example, suppose someone who, uh, there are many studies on people who developed addiction to drugs, for example, to cocaine or amphetamine. So when they are in the scanner and they are shown images of, say, syringes or of the drug itself, or even of uh, uh, people associated with the provision of drug, then all these systems in the brain linked to reward and pleasure um, are activated, right? So, and it's very clear compared to pictures that I would say are more neutral. So, um, and, and this is because this primary stimulus that is very pleasurable becomes associated with uh, other cues and the brain anticipates the pleasurable outcome and activate the networks um, in sequence. So I would say that certainly your brain would look very different uh, when you were shown images of hunting, for example, or of prey, compared to whether you were shown something that is not moving, even food that is not moving. That would be a very interesting study showing say, uh, moving, uh, target, uh, prey, and yeah. comparing it to brain responses to just uh, food on a plate, for example. Yeah, like if you if you showed me an elk and a kitty cat, and then you showed a non-hunter an elk and a mm -hmm. kitty cat, what exactly. would be, yeah, what would be the, the differences? Well, listen, I'm all in for that study. If you ever get it going, <laughs> I, will be, I will come <laughs> no, yeah. and let you study my brain. I am happy. Happy to do that. Yeah, I think that'd be super interesting. Uh, yeah, it's super interesting. What, what we know is that the brains of animals that ate after hunting versus ate when after versus when they eat uh, just regular food that was just um, sitting there, they look different, right? Because you engage very different systems for the obtaining of food. Eventually, the nutrient sensing in the brain is going to look similar, but Certainly, there are major differences there that I would bet would look very um, obvious. Yeah, because uh, there's been some other report, you know, some more surveys and things where people are trying to determine the why of hunting. And a couple of mm -hmm. a couple that I've read, and we'll, I'm attempting to get some of these folks that have done these studies on, have landed on this term achievement as one of the main mm -hmm. factors of why people hunt, or at least kind of the reward system for doing it, the motivation for doing mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think for, after hearing a lot of what you're saying, achievement is a very um, nebulous term in a way that we might say, 
I'm this achievement. I feel I feel rewarded by the antlers on the wall, but I, I'm also feeling this very innate achievement of you know predatory selection and of being a mm-hmm. competent predator and all mm-hmm. these things that are so connected to our neurology and also just to to who we are as an, on an evolutionary scale. So would you, if someone came to you and said, well, we we interviewed you know. 10,000 hunters in 2020 and they and overwhelmingly achievement was the thing that they selected out as is the reason they hunt the most. How would you kind of think about that term? Yeah, I mean uh, yeah, I think that um that requires some yeah, a specification, right? So we certainly humans have few achievements um for things that are not obviously advantageous for uh, from an evolutionary perspective, say when we solve a puzzle or a mathematical problem, right? We feel very good. We have this feeling of achievement, and the purpose of it is not clear, especially to people around you, right? But the so so there because hunting has such a biological importance, it, it certainly has something more intrinsic to it than just achievement itself, right? What um, may be true is that the, the ability to hunt and the feeling of achievement uh, generalized in more complex species like us into other things, right? So if we think, say, sports, for example, right, our ability to chase a ball and uh, get it and then hit it on a, uh, in a very specific location, um, and, and other activities that bring us uh, the feeling of achievement, they may be, let us say, situations that our culture created that somehow are related to, to hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Very much like, say, um, uh, uh, like a um, cat, like a small cats, for example, when they play, they play like hunting. They are not hunting. They certainly have this feeling of achievement when overcoming their siblings or something like that. But but the the, the, the reason why this behavior is there is probably like the development of a greater hunting skills. So um, I think that it may be some sort of byproduct of a more primary achievement uh, feeling that we derive from hunting and from other uh, activities essential for survival, like finding uh, a, a mate for for sex and other things like that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting too. That you know, because we have this semantics game in in the hunting world today, where we're talking mm-hmm. about it as a sport. How do we describe it? Is it a sport? Is it a pursuit? Um, are we harvest? Mm-hmm. Are we harvesting the animal? Are we killing the animal? We have this game of is, uh, certainly elements of a public relations game how to how do people best take in this activity but there's also i think mm-hmm. a struggle within our own minds to say like is it a sport if we call it a sport does that give the right reverence to the death involved um and we've talked recently on the show about this game like quality within within the hunting mm-hmm. pursuit where there is achievement there is this developing of of immense skills um and there is this risk reward system that we're involved in so um you know, it sounds like the word sport is a little more interesting than I thought before. Yeah, they, they may be like a cultural activities that somehow emulate um, hunting and, and, or, or, 
or hunting-like activities that are evolutionarily older. And, uh, and yeah, and they may be even used as a, as a way to say for those who oppose hunting itself, it may be proposed as a way to overcome this primitive behavior and, uh, and uh, display it in, a, in, a, in another setting, another way or something like that. But I think that, uh, yeah, this basic biological behavior survives in other activities that somehow simulate hunting. Mm -hmm. And uh, somehow sports could, you could think of it as, a, as one possible situation. Well, that's interesting. Well, Ivan, I really, I think we could probably talk about this all day. I know I could. Um, mm -hmm. This has been, there's been so many, you know, what I would just term as revelations for me and how you're describing some of these essential questions that I've been mm -hmm. asking myself and everyone that listens to the show, I think has probably either asked themselves openly or maybe wondered about, mm -hmm. you know, intrinsically. So if, if I would, would end by saying, if you want to study my brain, <laughs> please okay, give no. me a call. I, I, I'm really genuinely interested by this idea and that, that, that I could understand a little bit more of what's going on because the core of we're this is episode one thirty seven or eight of of the show and we've been doing it for mm -hmm. two years and I think the core idea is why do we do this and then trying to explain that to other people you know to explain these very intricate complicated activities yeah no I I think would be um, a very interesting and. Uh, we will come up with some good design and uh, certainly uh, will be fun to do that. I would love to do it. So if uh, mm -hmm. you keep in touch and I'll keep bothering you about it until you start studying my brain. <laughs> okay. You never know Sounds what you're going to find in there. <laughs> no, no. Even. Yeah, it's going to look very interesting, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ivan. Thank you so much for your time and we'll talk soon. Thank you too. All right, best. Bye. Bye. That's it. That's all. Thanks to Ivan for that great conversation. Apologies to him for all the silliness and uh, for trying our best to pronounce his name. But a lot to, to think about there. We're going to continue to kind of dive into the predator conversation, what predators mean on the landscape, what they mean for wildlife biology, what they kind of mean for our understanding of, of wildlife management and also ecosystems in general. I think it's an important conversation. In fact, Phil, mm -hmm. in fact, uh, next week, we're going to have the return of Dr. Valerius Geist. Oh, great. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Dr. Phil Medicine Woman, and I was about to say this is a terrible idea. <laughs> a terrible idea. No, no. We will never bring that doctor back. This one, um, <laughs> much like since we've, we've talked to Dan Flores, Dr. Daniel Staler, many others about getting really getting our minds right on predators, where they've been, where they're going, cohabitation, and those types of principles. I would say that Dr. Geist's opinion is is level set completely against um, what you hear from those folks and many others in the conservation community. So we'll touch on that with him. But we're also going to touch on his, his book with Shane Mahoney on the North American model of wildlife conservation. So hopefully you've been reading. This has been, you know, at least a month, over a month now since we've asked you to purchase that book and read it. Hopefully you've done so. We are going to be asking questions about that book next week on our first edition of the THC Book Club with Dr. Geist. So we're going to go through that book um, in detail. And if you'd like to ask him a question about that book, if you've read it, if you've kind of taken in its information, you'd like to ask him a question, 
please do so. THC at the mediator.com, THC at the mediator.com. Um, if your comments and questions are good, insightful, even funny, we'll choose you. And if we choose you, we'll have a little something for you. So THC at the mediator.com, THC at the mediator.com. If you want to ask Dr. Valerius Geis a question for episode numero uno of the THC book club next week. Thanks for another great episode. We will see you next week. Dr. Valerius Geis, bring your questions. It's going to be a good time. Say bye, Phil. Bye-bye. Because I can't go a week without doing wrong. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook. Wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside. From grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry. With pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.